this is Fintech Unplugged with Suresh Vajani and me, Robert Cornish. Hey, Happy New Year, Suresh. We're, we're, we're there. Another the fireworks year. are going off. Another new year. Wow. And uh, and here we are on this beautiful rooftop. Amazing Overlooking views. the Millennium Wheel. It's pretty cool here, isn't this it? Is a, it's a nice place you chose, Robert. Uh, always. You know, for you, Suresh, anything. Well, the, like to, uh, the security was a bit tight for me more than anybody else, but I guess you probably briefed them that I, I was coming. I did brief them and got extra gloves. So <laughs> hopefully that sorted itself out and you're feeling better already. So what's your uh, your New Year's regulation? What's your My New Year's New regulation? New Year's regulation. That's a, that's a good term. Who's, 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 who's that over there by the balcony? That looks somewhat familiar. Recognizer. Nalixa, it's it's the lady that used to be at the ah. FCA. She wrote the approach document. Do you think she's had a few drinks? So we could ask her some question about. We could get. Below would you say the she bell. she kind of represents some of the older bank banking establishment in the previous role she worked at? Yeah, yeah. We but we could actually try and get some juicy stuff out. Well, she's of got. It. She's drinking a whiskey. Well, that yeah, that will knock her out. All right, let's let's let's, let's, let's go, go in there. In there put the mic. Put the mic in your pocket. Sh- yeah, don't. Hey, cheers! Cheers, Nelixa, hi! It's Robert, do you remember yes, me? Yes, hi Robert, how are you? And I'm Suresh. Hey Nelixa, yeah, how are you? Great to see you. Beautiful um, fireworks, yeah? Fantastic fireworks, wow. Yeah, I'm surprised to see you both here this evening. Well, this is where Robert kind of lives and sleeps. I'm sure this is kind of his house. Never know. <laughs> well, it's a great venue. It's a great venue. Well, how lovely to see you. So, yeah, what, what, what are you up to these days, Nelixa? Give us a bit of an update. Oh, I'm, you know, doing a little bit of this and a little bit of that. I'm doing some consulting. Um, what sort of areas are you looking at? I'm looking at uh, payments, open banking, all of the things that flowed out of PSD2. I'm also looking at uh, digital currencies and anything actually that interests me and come my way. So wow. now, Nelixa, so like, like I know that we know you quite well and you know us. Just imagine that you were talking to strangers. I mean, it sounds like a strange request, but... Could you tell us a bit of background about yourself? And, and just ignore that microphone in Robert's pocket. Just No microphone. You know. <laughs> Shh. Is that a microphone? No, no, no. He's just happy to see you. No. <laughs> boom, boom. Oh, the old jokes are the best. Sorry, Nalixa, you have to put up with Suresh's yeah. bad humour. It's been an interesting journey for you. It has been a very much an interesting journey. If you want me to go way back when, I could actually start with the fact that I'm an immigrant. Okay. Um, I was born in Africa. Yes. And I've lived here for pretty much all of my life. I have started life as a lawyer, uh, worked in private practice for a few years, and then I moved in-house to Barclays, where I was many years with various different business units of Barclays, doing uh, commercial lending, retail mortgages, trade finance, sales finance, and um, pretty much one of the last things I did there was work in their global payments team. And obviously that is where I found my niche. Oh, wow. I decided that I was absolutely a payments nerd. Mm, um, when, when, what sort of year was that? Was it like 2010? No, later than that, actually. I've not been in the payment space for um, as long as some people. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> present company included. <laughs> what happened after that? Um, I, went, I went, I had the opportunity, I moved out of law and I went into the policy team at the FCA where I had the... The pleasure or the punishment of being around just and arriving just before uh, the PSD2 proposal was published. So I have lived and breathed that piece of regulation, having taken it through all of the EU negotiations, led on the FCA approach document on e-money and payment services. 
Um, and then I was also involved in some of the CMA open banking work while at the FCA. I have also been on secondment to the European Banking Authority. And what did you do during that secondment? More PSD2 payment stuff. Um, Anything and, in specific and, in and very specifically, I was the lead on the consultation for the guidelines for getting an exemption for your API. Getting an exemption for your API. Yeah, which uh, I'm, well, I'm sure, sure we'll come to. It, it did have a much more you technical must have had an name. Acronym. Yeah, <laughs> the yeah. European Parliament <laughs> wouldn't do anything without an acronym. Yeah, let's not go there. <laughs> <laughs> Probably seven letters and. I was actually involved from day one on the RTS, on SCA, if you want acronyms <laughs> um, and abbreviations. Pretty much I have lived and breathed and had nightmares about this piece of legislation. And then I moved on from the regulator to be head of reg at the Open Banking Implementation Entity. Because wow. obviously open banking is, it's it's there. And do you want to explain what OBIE is? Because for those of us who don't watch Star Wars, <laughs> <laughs> it's not one Kenobi. <laughs> Very thematic. Just just you're going to get an award from the Queen. Yeah, yeah. I... <laughs> So the Open Banking Implementation Entity is the body that is mandated under the order imposed by the CMA on the nine banks that have the largest share of retail bank current accounts that required them to give access to their current accounts via application program interfaces, interfaces, APIs, and OBIE was actually set up to deliver that, to deliver the standards, to monitor and affect how well it's all actually going as well. They really went out with that name, didn't they? I mean, like that must have paid <laughs> marketing company ages to come out with <laughs> OBIE entity as the last word, really. <laughs> yeah, well, it doesn't really it does matter. Everybody knows what it is, OBIE, so yeah, it says what it does on the tin. You know, in the UK, we've got these parallel twin tw- twin tracks. For... You're going to say something else, though, weren't you? <laughs> it's that whiskey kicking in. We both nodded our head as well. Yeah. <laughs> Can I just say, I don't drink whiskey. <laughs> oh, that tried... wasn't whiskey. So what that was wasn't that? whiskey. What is that you're drinking there? That's gin. Oh, okay. Why is it brown? <laughs> no, I think that's how many you've had. <laughs> So the nine banks have complied with the CMA order. They also have to and implement what is the PS. CMA order? The CMA order is and the what one. Is the CMA? The Competition and Markets Authority. We could have a quiz at the end as to how many of oh, these abbreviations I actually use. One of the competitions we have, and we'll, we'll be <laughs> and you've we'll done be it without knowing. <laughs> so the Competition and Markets Authority did an investigation into retail banking. They decided that there wasn't enough competition in retail banking, and in order to facilitate greater competition and innovation, they would require these nine banks to open up access to their current account data to other banks and to fintechs and that they would do that via an API. At the same time as that was happening, PSD2 was being implemented, which requires every payment service provider, which is more than just banks, it's e-money firms, it's payment institutions, it's uh, credit card firms as well, to open up access to their payment account data, which is a wider set of accounts than current accounts because it's also e-money accounts, credit card accounts, instant access savings accounts, um, and for all currencies, not just sterling, which is the remit of the CMA order. So 
everybody in the UK and across Europe has been putting a lot of time, effort and energy and probably also quite a bit of money. So who was the main driving force behind that? And what was, you know, what was the, like, who decided this would be a good thing? Well, the CMA, under the CMA order, because it did a very, very thorough market investigation. And it's a hefty tome that they published at the end. I think if you print it, you know, it's about that high. <laughs> good bedtime reading. Um, very and useful obviously, when you're trying to change lights on um, Christmas trees. Yeah, or you need somewhere it. to put your monitor. <laughs> and at the same time, obviously, across Europe, the European Parliament had commissioned and also decided that they needed to have greater innovation and competition in payments and payment services. So a twin tracks approach. Okay. Uh, only the UK has got an OBIE. Um, and the UK has it's got unique. PSR. <laughs> this is true. It, that's, it's we, unique. We are, in many, unique. we are unique in many ways. And in my opinion, the benefit of having mm. a, an entity, a centralised body, whatever you want mm. to call it, is that what we have seen is that across Europe there are other Entities that have been set up also to produce standards, um, Berlin Group and STET and, and various other initiatives. But because they do not have the same mandate, implementation is more fragmented, and which sort of defeats the purpose of PSD2, is that if you have fragmented implementation, it's not going to work well for the fintechs and those that want to access the data if they're not able to do it in a simple and consistent uh, manner. And, and I'm, 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 I'm thinking, I don't know if we've actually answered your first question. Have we concluded where you are? I mean, we've... Like, we didn't. We sidetracked, didn't okay. we? Okay, so we, where, we where have you got to in your so career? So I, I, moved, I moved on from OBIE and I've set up my own consultancy firm. And what have you Payment called it? Payment Solved. Payment Solved. Payments Payment Solved. Payment Solved. And where do you see the, the UK firms in relation to this whole... API open banking thing. I mean, twentieth of September was a was a date. It was, but it was actually the thirteenth. <laughs> ah, okay. Rewind. Well, where, where... <laughs> how much have you drunk, Robert? <laughs> the thirteenth of September was a date. What happened on that date? Not a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Did anyone implement no, no. APIs lots of, on the thirteenth? Lots 13th? and lots and lots and lots of. Uh, well, the CMA nine have had APIs from. Uh, actually, the 13th of January 2019. And in between, lots of other providers have actually um, put up APIs and have had firms interacting and taking data via those APIs. The 13th of September 2020 was an important date because it's the one... 2020? Sorry, 2019. I'm getting it wrong as well now. <laughs> have another drink. Enjoy that gin. <laughs> You can add some tonic if you want. <laughs> just, just, a, just a down dash. In one. Just a dash. <laughs> can you just tell me, did anyone other than the Brits actually do anything on the 13th of September? What, what, what were they doing in Cyprus yeah. on the 13th of September? Loads, loads of firms, lots of, many, many firms have actually put up APIs by the 13th of September. Um, what they may not have done is got their exemption from their local regulator. But the 13th of September 2019 was the deadline for SCA to be implemented. And obviously there is a, a whole piece of work in the UK and across Europe now um, for how that's actually going to be rolled out. Now what did all and these extensions mean? So that's, that's for strong customer authentication, uh, SCA. Would you like me to explain SCA or yeah, we I can take it, would, it as a... I think, no, I think no, the, the viewers, view, well, the viewer... Okay. <laughs> 
The uh, the listener, I think we should call them. Um, yeah. So SCA is strong customer authentication. That is two-factor authentication, which requires that if you make a a, a remote payment, so basically uh, an online payment, you will have to um, use two out of three factors, which are uh, something I know, something I am, like biometrics, and something I have, like a mobile phone or so a card. Let's go through those with Suresh here. What's the first one? Something I know. That's nothing. Second one. <laughs> we'll have to miss that one. <laughs> it is two of three, so we're okay. Let's try for two. Let's see if we get uh, something. Number two. I know way too much about Robert. That's the issue. I could make a lot of money just with that information. That's a book in the making, isn't it? <laughs> what is number two? Come on. Let's see if we can find something on number two. What's the second factor? Something I am. Okay. Biometrics. Um, you... Something he is. He's got a fingerprint. Yeah. We'll, 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 we'll give him that. Okay. Yeah. And the third bit? Something I have. Skateboard. Scooter. Skateboard. <laughs> yeah. We were straight in there. Well, so, if there's so a, there we you know, how, an how FC do we get chip that in your into... scooter, you'll be fine. I was going to say, how can, how can we build that into a customer authentication service? Anything's possible. Skateboard and thumbprint. Off you go. So now um, we know what it is. And we so know, know Suresh can comply with it on his uh, chip across... embedded skateboard and thumbprint. <laughs> yeah. Across Europe, it had to be implemented by the 13th of September 2019. Um, but for e-commerce transactions, the ones where you're online and you want to buy something, that didn't happen. It was acknowledged that it wasn't going to happen by that deadline. And so there was lots of discussions across lots of industry bodies and the regulators as to what an extension should look like. Um, eventually, the European Banking Authority came out and said that actually we think that 15 months is an appropriate timeline. But before that, the UK and France and I think Denmark had said that actually we think 18 months or I think France was even longer at one point in time. Since the EBA have said that actually we think 15 months is a good timeline, pretty much all of the member states have said, OK, we will adhere to a 15-month timeline to get this implemented across our industry. Uh, but the UK has actually stuck to 18 months because it went to a lot of time, effort and energy to actually agree that with the industry. The industry obviously implemented plans to adhere to that timeline so I think it's a sensible outcome that they've yeah. stayed 18 months. I, I, I still think we'll probably have it in place in the UK before anywhere else in Europe even though they've got a shorter timeline just because we are the best at doing these things. Well, we, the if, best we, at if we say we're going to do it we, we do it and we do comply absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and that, that's, that's what's made Britain great. So on, <laughs> on that note you've worked with kind of you know European, you know, regulators, UK, and, and UK has always kind of been seen as this crown model, you know, the FCA was like, everybody wants to learn from them in the way they've done the sandbox, all of these things. W what differences have you seen working with different regulators from around the world? Like, what are the, you know, what are the extremes that you've seen? You don't have to name the country. No, 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 I'm, I'm just... some more. <laughs> <laughs> have another, have another one. I think the big difference in the ability of regulators to be as front-running as the FCA is resource. Um, the FCA is, I mean, there are still challenges. It's like any organisation, you only have a finite amount of resource and you have to prioritise. But the FCA just has more people 
than a number of other regulators. And, and again, that depends on, on the jurisdiction, you know, how many people in any given country, how um, advanced their their financial services industry is. So there's lots of drivers so as to where regulators are. well-funded? The FCA, um, I would say both. I'm sure there will be others that disagree with me, but but I also think that it's it's um, a virtuous circle or cycle, isn't it? Is that if you decide that you are going to be a regulator that wants to support competition and innovation, and actually, sorry, I should say a fundamental difference also is that the FCA has a mandate to do these things. Um, it's unusual for a regulator to have a mandate for competition. Um, and again, a distinction is that we are unusual in this uh, country in that we have a number of different regulators um, that look at financial services. Often in other jurisdictions, you'll find it, it is just the just central, a central bank. bank and yeah. a central bank's fundamental reason to be is stability. Well, we have the central policy. bank, we have the PRA and the FCA. And yeah, we and have the, and PSR, the PSR and we have OBIE. Well, OBIE is not a regulator. No, true. No. So... We should should be absolutely clear on that. It's not a regulator. What's the other end of the spectrum? You know, you've worked with different entity, um, kind of jurisdictions. What are the other territories that you've seen a total contrast? You know, so the contrast is whether you have something primarily that's regulation led or is industry led. And if you if uh, but industry led maybe with a lot of moral suasion from the regulator. So if you look at countries like Singapore. Um, they have initiatives in train um, where they are industry-led, but I think there is a lot of regulatory oversight as to the direction of travel. Um, and then you have other countries, like if you look at... The US is looking at open banking. I mean, it's had access to accounts for a very, very long time, so it's not a, a new service there. But it's now looking at open banking, which is very, very much an industry-led initiative. And so, you know... Both both sort of types of implementation have their benefits, but both also have their challenges. Do you think we'll see open banking adopted in the US? You'll see a style of open yeah. banking, okay. yeah. More, I mean, as I say, they already have access to accounts. It's sort of more how they want that to be more consistent and more uniform, and whether they want it the same across all of their um, different states as opposed to probably what is the situation there today. But, I mean, open banking is, is happening everywhere, isn't it? It's happening in uh, Australia, Canada, Singapore, Hong Kong, um, Taiwan, where I was recently. Um, you know, everybody's looking at open banking. I think that really the question that countries should be asking themselves now is, should we really start to open banking? Or should we go for the Australia model, which is open data and a consumer data mm. right? Um, and, and where on that sort of Spectrum, line yeah. is it appropriate for our jurisdiction? And, and you know, that, that, that will define which way a country goes and how they choose to implement. Um, and, you know, there's, there's benefits of doing it the way that have been done here in the UK and across Europe. But we can see already that the conversation has moved. It's no longer about open banking. The next stage is open finance. We've already got the regulators looking at how it can move from open banking to open finance because, as we all know, just having access or API access to your current account data 
doesn't actually give enough. It's not. It's not the full spectrum. Yeah. And we can see that the helping people to make decisions, helping people to understand better their full financial spectrum, requires more than just the current account. Planning. Exactly. You're right. Yeah. Um, and and actually, you know, whether you believe in open banking or, or think it's for the greater good or not, we do now in the UK have actually a a piece of infrastructure. You know, in my opinion, it's going to become critical infrastructure as we move forward. And there's no reason why that can't be actually used for the wider provision of open finance services or even open data. You know, an API standard is not the difficult bit no. about all of this. It's no. the actual bit behind it of doing yeah. it. Can I just pull back there? I mean, Suresh over there, he's, he's, he's just about completed key stage two development, as we know. Um, and he's getting there. But you introduced a new word that, that even I hadn't heard of before, and, I, and I'm well past key stage two. But we should, it would help it the up? users. Well, you, you, the moral suasion. Yeah. Do you want to explain what moral suasion is? It's something that Robert will not understand, no matter how you explain it. You, the fact that you said morals in there. So I'm actually intrigued, because if you can convert Robert, anything's possible. So I use it in the context of um, how a regulator might choose to influence what its industry is doing. And I would say that every regulator, you know, does that. If, if the FCA or the government or the EBA puts out a thought piece or a, you know, this is how we think, this is what we think good looks like. That's moral suasion. There's no law telling you you have to behave in that way. There's no regulation saying you have to behave in that way. But if you're in the financial services industry and there is something that comes out of your regulator that sort of signposts you in a certain direction, uh, then that to me is moral suasion. Can you suasion. give us a live example? A live example. A real example that you've seen in practice. Yeah. What, 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 what has a regulator done to try and change the way an industry works without having to actually go down the line of putting a regulation in place? APIs. There's no requirement under PSD2 to have an API. But you look at all of all of the, the publications that come out. I mean, it started very much when there was the joint um, government FCA publication. You know, well, this is going back for four years now, probably, on expectations of industry for access... And it very much said that we think that APIs are a safer, more secure mechanism for doing this rather than credential sharing and screen scraping. And the RTSs? Are they, no, the RTSs, are they, the RTS law. Is that, that is law? That is law. But do the RTSs for this not refer to APIs? Uh, no. The only requirement for an API is under the CMA order for the CMA9. Well, but it's just become but, but, but everybody practice. thinks... That so they, that's what they have to do. Yeah. So I remember and, one and of the Berlin group was coming up with APIs for, for the industry as well. Mm. And a lot of the industry groups were coming but, up with APIs. But across all of Europe, every regulator has taken the view, um, I'm not aware of anybody taking a different view, that actually the better, safer, more secure way of sharing this data um, is via an API, rather than giving your credentials or sharing your credentials and screen scraping. And so, I mean, if you think about it, that whole uh, ecosystem is actually built on moral suasion. That's good. 
So now, I know you may think you've drunk too much because you can see Robert rummaging in that bin, but he's actually looking for questions. No one's told him that we actually, the bin of confusion's on the left. Uh, so. <laughs> oh my. What is this? It's a, it's a term thrown away by a, a, by a lot of industry influencers, but what more can be done from a regulatory perspective, it's difficult to say after five hours of drinking, to speed up financial inclusion. Do you think financial inclusion is still a problem or is it, is it being solved? It's one of the biggest problems that we have yet to solve in a meaningful way. I think financial inclusion, again, means different things depending on where you live and who you are. Um, so financial inclusion in the UK is, I think, very different to, say, maybe what financial inclusion is in India. And you could actually maybe say that financial inclusion in India has taken a, a, a quantum leap ever since they had their ADAR scheme and, and the... Um, Rupay, was it, they brought in? ATMs. ATM, yeah. And the UPI interface yes, yeah. that allowed all of the services to grow on top of that. You know, they, they've suddenly got millions of people now having access to financial services that they didn't have before. I think... Could you explain what the UPI... It, oh, in very, very, in a, in a very, <laughs> yeah, um, I don't know what that acronym stands for, but it's got interface at the end of it. <laughs> uh, it's universal up. payment interface. Okay. Wow. That's what it is. We I like think, that. I we think like that's that. what it is, but I could have Sounds just made it up. We will adopt it. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's the, it's the infrastructure that allows for um, these new payment providers to actually allow payments to flow in India. Um, so it's just opening up the access and providing a consistent mechanism for doing that. Right. And it's done via APIs. Yeah. And didn't um, they do this on the back of their national ID system where they were basically getting everyone to ID themselves? Yeah, that was the ADAR scheme where everybody had to register a biometric. Um, and that got quite a large proportion of that enormous population. Yep. Millions and millions, possibly even the billions. I don't have the figures. Mm. So I think that... Um, in the UK, if you talk about in terms of the UK, it, there's definitely a driver for open banking helping with financial inclusion. And you think there's lots of initiatives already in train to, to sort of meet that need, the open banking for good type initiatives and, and the Nesta challenges that are there as well. Um, but obviously there, there are many aspects of financial inclusion and we also have to be mindful that having everything digital doesn't lead to financial exclusion. Because in order to access all these services, open banking mm. services, you have to be in the digital world. In the digital world, and so therefore, at the same time, we have this conversation about access to cash. Um, and we've also seen that, haven't we, that in Sweden they have grave concerns about the the lack of cash because flowing yeah, they're, in they're there. pushing to cash zero, aren't they? Yeah, but interestingly, I'm not sure that theirs theirs is so much about financial inclusion because. Uh, I think per capita they have quite a high ratio of financial inclusion. It's more about inadvertent exclusion and also the role of a central bank. Because if you think the central bank, the one thing that everybody has that a central bank issues is paper money. And if you don't necessarily have paper money flowing in your economy, then what is the role of the central bank? But Sweden is also the country where they're pushing their digital currency, aren't they? We've got the e-krona uh, 
in this year that's been going on for three years already. It has, and I think it was announced that the Swedish Central Bank is partnering, I think, with Accenture was what Finexpo yes. was saying, yeah, in order right. to, to run a, a mm. test pilot for its e-krona. So that's um, very exciting, and we've seen China going that route as well. So you've, you've always been very outspoken, you've always kind of said it how it is. If you had a magic wand and you could change something about the regulator, anything, what would it be? Your New Year's regulation. Uh, I have to say that there's there's not anything that I would really change about the regulator. We talk about the UK regulator because I think it has a really good uh, forward-looking agenda. Anything in the anything. But at all. about the regulations, I would not wish for a PSD three. I would very, very, very much um, like it if there was an ability for industry to sort of just take stock, see how it's working, um, iron out all of those problems that we are currently seeing in the market today because of the way that PSD2 has landed, which, if you think about it, it, it's really difficult to write legislation that allows technology to actually sort of flourish you know that's what you want to do that's what psd2 tried to do but if you think about it strong customer authentication two-factor authentication is actually old tech there are easier better and quicker ways of now doing authentication than having to do 2fa so it would be really good if there I'd was this sweet fa <laughs> sorry that's exactly what we're doing now isn't it <laughs> So kind of self-regulation, kind of... I'm not sure that self-regulation is the right way to go as well. It's a bit of a balance, but it's, it's that challenge, and it is really a challenge of if if you are going to have Wasn't this sort of initiative... Wasn't that what the tried to do originally, and that's why they ended up with PSD1, the original PSD coming in, which was the... Uh, originally had a different name. It was uh, something like the Framework for Payments or something like that. It, it was, was, yeah. Um, but yeah, that came out because they felt that the European Banking Council or EBC was it or was it ECB, uh, they they just were not able to self-regulate enough, and they finally decided they needed to put actual regulation in. So you suggest but, we but step PSD back. PSD one as regulation, PSD one, PSD as yeah. regulation actually was fantastic because it actually created payment institutions, and you look at how they have flourished and what what they brought to the market in terms of innovation and competition. So it worked really well for what it was looking to do, which was provide that that challenge mm. to the incumbents. PSD2 will do that as well. The difficulty has been is that it's imposed obligations on regulators to sort out exemptions and make decisions about technology and how well technology is functioning, which is probably not the best thing for a regulator to do. Um, but again, it's it's that, how do you allow it to be flexible enough so you don't hard bake in these sorts of, you know, current technology that we're aware of and leave it open enough so that the market can flourish? I mean, the, the, the prime example, which everybody in open banking today is struggling with, is 90-day um, reauthentication. This is if you have access to accounts... Um, you, you, you can have that access to the accounts without the customer being present on a rolling 90-day basis as long as the customer authenticates themselves every 90 days. Now, what we now know is that actually 
you know, that, that doesn't necessarily work well for the customer or the firm because we're all quite lazy and we can't be bothered to do it. But that stops the provision of services. But it's in the law. So you can't now get round it without changing the law. Um, and the whole reason that was there, because when the legislation was being drafted and discussed and negotiated, access was via credential sharing, screen scraping. Screen scraping yeah. So it, it was not a big thing for a customer to have to authenticate. Now it's via APIs. It's actually become a barrier rather than a benefit. You know, and, and, and you know, that balance of consumer protection could be dealt with in other ways. So I, I guess you kind of answered the question in terms of you wouldn't change anything with the UK regulator. What about some of the overseas regulators? I think that they all do an amazing job with the challenges they have for their particular jurisdictions. You know, as I say, being a regulator is very jurisdiction specific. You have an outward look and you want to take the benefits of what, say, the rest of the world is doing. And you could even say that in certain parts of the world, you know, maybe having open banking or having a sandbox or having a, an innovation hub is, is like keeping up with the neighbours because everybody's got one. And now you have this global financial innovation network as well that has been set up between the regulators. But they do genuinely, I honestly don't believe people work for a regulator unless they genuinely want to make a difference. So how, how would you say the regulators are... So, so would you say that they absolutely have their finger on the pulse? Because sometimes you hear, you know, regulators making new rules, new laws that actually they think it makes sense to the market, but actually it's not something that the market requires. So what I'm basically saying is, do you think the regulators always get it right? I think with the benefit of hindsight... You could say they don't, but I think at the point in time that they're trying to make a policy change and trying to implement a rule, it is very much with the intention of either righting a wrong or preventing a wrong. But do you think they get input from industry to actually make calculated decisions? Like, I'll give you an example. So one of the, the things I often talk about is when there was this you know, reduction in interchange um, and it was... It was like, this will be great for the industry. This is going to, you know, what's going to happen is merchants are going to save all of that, you know, all the benefit savings. They're going to pass on to the end customer, which they just didn't do. And then, you know, it, and then it was this kind of, you know, even the the, 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 the charging. I, I, I've gone places where they say, this is our price, but if you pay by debit card, we'll give you a discount. So it's like, but doesn't that mean you're charging me more for a credit card anyway? It's like, no, and some of these are airline companies. So I'm actually really, like, shocked by it because it's supposed to not be paying a premium for using a credit card. But but I guess I'm going back to the interchange. It was like, we're going to reduce interchange without understanding how many mouths that interchange generally feeds. I, I think in that respect, I think you're absolutely right. That I think that... Um, regulators are becoming more and more aware of the uh, the relationships that exist in industry um, and the fact that you, you can't just look at the top layer. You've got to go under the surface. And I think interchange is a really good example. I think the implementation of SCA, which has been delayed, is another prime example. Because if you think about it, that piece of... Re that requirement said that across all of Europe, 
on the very same day, or by the very same day, you will have all, this is um, issuing bank, acquiring bank, um, merchants, customers, all of the technology players that sit in between those, you will have got your act together and delivered this. Um, and I don't think it was appreciated at the time that that was being actually Maybe it was put like chipping pin when it was like, we're going to do it on this day and it just works. Everyone's using chipping pin. And it was like, we'll do the same across everything. Yeah. yeah. And, but I think that the thing is, is that as industry changes, what is also happening is that there are more and more players coming into the ecosystem. And, and I think that that is becoming more and more apparent. And it is now, you know, on the radar of regulators. Um, and, and, and that's why you have this extension that actually this is a major technological project and implementation that has to be delivered across all of Europe. That is a, that's a big ask. And talking about regulators, what's your take on Libra and how the regulators viewed it? I actually think, I firmly, absolutely believe this, that that Libra white paper is going to change the face of regulators and regulation across the globe. Because what that white paper did, whether it tended to or not, was to say to particularly central banks, we don't need you anymore. We can do this on a global scale and we can do it ourselves and we can move money. Now, to me, that is almost like a version of, you know, the day the central bank stood still. That's what I thought when that paper was published and I read it. That however you framed it, whatever you have said in this document, indirectly what you have said is we do not need central banks and we do not need incumbents and we do not need SWIFT in order to move money globally. So is that why they and got this their is backs why, up? I, I don't think it's a case of getting their backs up. I think it's a massive, massive wake-up call. That actually, it's not just because it's not just about moving money. It, yeah. It's it's got all the right things there. It's about inclusion. It's about lower cost of remittance. Yeah. It's about the fact that everything is now global. It doesn't address the fact that there are really AML concerns or stability concerns or terrorist financing concerns or what you know the, all of that. The bit in there that said the reason they were doing this was for financial inclusion that that was the driver they said for it that was that popped up all over it did what they were doing it did um and everyone said no that's fake they just want to nick your data this is facebook they, they want your data <laughs> this has got nothing to do with making life easier oh it definitely made life easier i i think the thing is that, that, that i don't know what is in the head of um the people developing libra as to what they meant by financial inclusion i think that's that that's the fundamental issue, is it? That financial inclusion means different it things to different of people. It kind looked like Zuckerberg if, was using financial inclusion as a as a carrot to try and get this past the regulators. A if, I'm being, if I'm being controversial, and what he really wanted was to grab financial data from two, three, four, five billion people around the world that he's got on Facebook. But do you think he needs to do that? I mean, if you think about it, Facebook has held an e-money license for how long now? Not really it, used it much. It's never used it, has it? No. 
it, 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 it could get yeah it could get an AIS or a PIS license for, and, 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 and do that across all of Europe and yet it hasn't done it there's obviously a, a data thing going on here and obviously the data is sort of the next big sort of um, frontier data is the next gold it's the next gold or the next frontier for financial services isn't it because mm. it's now all about the data so I, I can't tell you what was driving that beyond the fact that it was generated a hell of a lot of publicity as well didn't it Massive. I'm not sure that uh, anybody within that organization actually expected the necessarily the reaction that it, it was got. a massive kickback. Yeah, but you think about it. As far as I recall, I think it was 26 central banks got in a room with Facebook. Yeah. 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 This is what I'm saying is it was a seminal moment in how regulation for firms that operate globally is going to be managed going forward. And what would you prefer as a central currency? There are number under the new Chinese uh, coin or Facebook. Difficult question. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure there's a there's any rational answer to that question on a New Year's Eve. But I think interestingly, if you look at what's happening in China, yeah. they're not looking to issue a digital coin for financial inclusion. No. The central bank there is more interested in the fact that actually it has got very large tech platforms that are allowing the payments to flow. And so what's its role? I well, my understanding was the Chinese move was all about uh, cross-border payments because China is uh, very um, difficult to get money in and out of at the moment, and they felt that this would be a way that they could manage a release of funds out of the country through a digital format where they have full control over it. If you think about moving normal payments through SWIFT and things like that, once it's gone, it's gone. If the currency is owned by the Chinese government, bank, whatever you want to call it, uh, then that will move all around the world, but it will still be backed by something in the Chinese central bank. It will never leave China, technically. Hmm. I think so, but it doesn't actually solve for cross-border payments as such, does it? Because you've still got the FX. Even if you've got a digital sterling and a digital euro... If Which was the to... point of Libra. Libra would be that conduit currency that yeah. would enable you to ignore currencies and just I mean the, the future where everything is going is transfer of value and what does value mean exactly and value doesn't mean currency and people still go back to fiat and they talk about um, fungibility fungibility is all about transfer of value it's not about a currency it's not about something crypto or something like that it's not about the data it's, a, it's about transferring value it is but that then that gosh this is quite thought-provoking stuff for a New Year's Eve conversation, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> oh, but we're, we're, we're enjoying our, our, our debate. This is putting the world to rights on payments. Which this is, is absolutely... You can only do this you after can midnight do this on, on a, New Year's after Day. Fireworks, exactly. <laughs> so, um, just wrapping this up, I'll go back into the, to the bin of confusion for, for one last question. In your time at the FCA... What was the one moment that you found most brilliant, enlightening, happy, fulfilling, and the one moment you found most frustrating, annoying, and the highlight and the low light of, of, of your career in the FCA? A bit like your experience on FinTech Unplugged. <laughs> we can go into that so, afterwards. The most difficult, hardest thing I had to do and deal with at the FCA was that when the EBA published 
you may recall it had something called the Guidelines on Internet Payments. Mm-hmm. Um, and the FCA was the only regulator that said to the EBA, we will not comply. Ah, and the reason we said that we will not comply is because we were negotiating to do with PSD2. It's actually, well, if you have to do what this says, you're probably going to have to do something slightly different in a couple of years' time. There was no expectation at that point that it, PSD2 would take as long to be negotiated mm-hmm. and implemented as it did. Banks would have had to change what they had implemented so it made sense to do it that way but it's it's a rare thing for a regulator to turn around and say to an a a pan supervisory body like the eba we will not comply that was very very one of those moments where they said if who's going to do this please take one step forward and everyone took one step back before you (laughs) no it was it wasn't that we had any problem in in the decision we made yeah it was just the sort of Yes, we're actually going to do this moment, and that that requires a lot of sort of going up the chain and coming back down the chain, and so that that was um, that was quite quite difficult. And the highlight. Oh, do you know? I I really do have. I I love my time at the FCA. The whole journey was a highlight because I learned so many different things. I met so many wonderful people, and I suppose the super 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 highlight would be actually leading on the delivery of the PSD2 Payment Services Approach document. I was going to say, was it the pressing of the button when you finally could press send on the final version? Yes, it's done. But but I suppose the super, super, super highlight would be the little sort of memento I had made up for the team um, following that that was Star Wars themed, because that is my other passion. Payments and Star Wars to be able to bring the two... To be able to bring the two together was also a highlight... And you do know the lady from Jumio was Dasha in uh, in the Star Wars films. Yeah, yeah, head of sales at Jumio. Anyway, so little known fact. I was going to ask you because I think you're gonna you're gonna smash this next bit, right? Just one bit. What's the longest sentence you can have with as much jargon acronyms in payments that you can say? In one breath? No, it can no, be as many just, breaths as just, you want. And we're going to okay. start the clock when you say bang when you start your mouth, and then we'll see how long it goes. So it was no surprise that the EBA told industry that they could have an extension on the um, SCA RTS that would allow firms to implement 2FA <laughs> um, to an extended timeline. But at the same time, the FCA also said that firms that were implementing open banking could also have longer in which to get their exemptions for an exemption from fallback for the API. But it's also interesting, I think, going forward that you have the FCA, the EBA, the ECB, the European Commission and all UK regulators looking at what are the next steps for open finance and if they should actually be open data. But it's also interesting that at the same time as those bits of regulation are continuing. You have negotiations for six AMLD and for. Yeah, she have a guillotine on this? <laughs> <laughs> I think she's gone past the Dave Birch. Well, the Dave Birch, we didn't understand anything that he said. Yeah, exactly. And we're with that. Um, that, that and was... I didn't even put CBDC into that. No, no, no. Uh, and everyone's yeah, in mean, CBD this day. Cannabis oil, you know. It's very important. It's central bank digital currency. Oh, oh okay. Yeah, right, sorry, okay. sorry. Because we were, you know, Robert was like kind of rubbing his hands together. <laughs> thinking, New Year's <laughs> is here. Yeah. 
So, we um, better top up the gin and leave you to enjoy the rest of the Well, uh, it was a pleasure fireworks. to meet you both. Enjoy the rest of your evening. Thank you for your time. And a happy new year. Party on. Happy new year, everybody. Fintech Unplugged is available for download on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, Overcast and TuneIn. So please subscribe today and remember to give us a five-star rating.